Uh, we're, uh, we're at our last, at our last lesson, aren't we? Uh, in the book of James, lesson number 13. And we're closing uh, the quarter by looking at the everlasting gospel. What the Bible teaches regarding the gospel from the Old Testament all the way through and into the New Testament. The everlasting gospel. It's been a good journey, hasn't it? Uh, if, if, I hope you've enjoyed studying the book of James as much as I have. It's been, uh, been terrific. And I, I, I would suspect that, that uh, you, any, any fears that you had regarding James and whether he really taught the gospel have been uh, settled and that you've seen that he's done nothing but uplift Christ and, uh, and, and has sought to uh, encourage us to not be hearers of the word only, but to be doers by the grace of God. And um, so we'll, uh, we're going to look at the everlasting gospel. And of course, we're going to, uh, in that context, line up some of the things that James has uh, taught in his book and, uh, and see that they are compatible. Our memory text is Jeremiah 31 verse 3. And it's a beautiful text. It says, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yea, well, yes, I have loved you with a, what type of love? Everlasting. Everlasting love. There with loving kindness, I have drawn you. You know, God doesn't beat people up trying to get us to come to him. What does he do? He loves us. And with that love, he seeks to draw us to himself. It's incredible, incredible love that God has. And we'll see that as we, again, as we unpack the gospel here. Good news. We all like good news. When you tune into mainstream media, uh, you hear many different things, a lot of bad news, racial tensions, astronomical national debt, government corruption, celebrity rape allegations, uh, international instability, the Ebola scare. We live in a bad news world. There's no doubt about it. And we all sit on the edge of our seats waiting for good news, something that will be a balm to heal and assuage our hearts. Studies have shown that the ratio of bad news to good news on mainstream media, and this is not going to surprise you, is 17 to 1. 17 to 1. That's 95% of the news you, you get, um, that I get, whether it be on your iPhone or on, your, on the internet or on your TV, 95% uh, of that news is bad news. But God offers us good news in a bad news world. And it's called the gospel. It's called the gospel. Uh, and by the way, that word gospel comes from the old English word, Godspell. Godspell, which means good news. In the New Testament, gospel translates as, or is translated from the Greek word evangelion. Evangelion, which, which, from, which is where we get the word evangel from. And so that means good news. An evangelist, what does an evangelist do? An evangelist shares the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's right. That's what an evangelist does. A preacher of the gospel, the good news. In several different places, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, and then in 1 Timothy 1 verse 11, the Bible speaks of the gospel as being glorious. Glorious. That's a, that's a magnificent word. And certainly when we know and understand the gospel, we come to realize that the gospel is glorious. There's no doubt about that. In Revelation, in chapter 14, let's open our Bibles there. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 only in this chapter and in this verse in the entire scriptures 
is the word everlasting connected to the word gospel. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, and perhaps you can recite it by memory. Uh, John said, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the what type of gospel? The everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So only, this is the only place in the entire scriptures where uh, the word everlasting is connected to the word gospel, interestingly enough. In other words, this is a eternal gospel. In other words, this is a gospel, this is the only gospel that can save men. It's the only one. And <clears throat> the gospel will continue to be the gospel that saves men as long as there are men and women and boys and girls that need to be saved. This is why the gospel writer it attaches the word everlasting to the word gospel, because it's an everlasting gospel. It's a gospel that will not change. It's a gospel that is around until all men, women, boys and girls that can be saved will be saved. It's eternal. And not only from the perspective of going forward, but also from the perspective of going backwards. Um, when man, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden, did, was God taken by surprise? God wasn't taken by surprise, was he? He didn't say, oops, hey, hold on, we have a problem here. I wonder what plan I should come up with uh, to, uh, to save mankind from this mess that they found themselves in. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, we're told that, uh, that the lamb, Jesus, is the, is the lamb that was slain from when? The foundation of the, of the world. God didn't just say, okay, better come up with a plan now. This is a plan that had been set in operation prior to, because God in his foreknowledge could see what was going to happen. Now, that raises several other questions that we don't have time to answer here this morning, but suffice to say, God allowed things to unravel because of his love for, uh, the, for the fallen angel and angels in heaven and for uh, uh, Adam and Eve and this human race, this lost human race. He allowed it to unravel. And, uh, and, he, and he offers this globe, you and I, the good news. How, the good news of how you and I can be saved in God's eternal kingdom. How we can, uh, how we can enjoy the privileges that were lost in the Garden of Eden. How we can eat from the tree of life again. That's all that the gospel entails. God's plan to bring us back from whence we fell. That's it. The gospel, good news. So we're going to talk about the everlasting gospel, and we're going to answer certain basic questions surrounding salvation by faith here today. By closing the quarter with a look at how the gospel is presented in the Bible, we can better see how James fits the larger picture of God's plan to save humanity. So turn with me to Sunday's lesson, the gospel in the Old Testament. And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. Notice what the writer says. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. It's very interesting. In chapter 3, he's just finished talking about how Israel, because of their unbelief, could not enter into the promised land. You know the story very well. Uh, and, uh, and it was because of their disobedience, their unbelief, that they couldn't make it in. And so in verse, verse uh, 1 and 2, notice what Paul says here. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, that's God's rest, let us fear, 
lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Verse 2, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to who? Them. The gospel is preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So the gospel, the good news was not only preached, Paul was not only preaching it, not only did he uh, hear the gospel himself and not only was he preaching the gospel, but also the Israelites had the gospel preached to them as well. Um, How did the Israelites have the gospel preached to them? There were various ways, weren't there? God raised up prophets. We think of Moses initially and uh, how he declared the gospel. We also have, uh, you recall, the sanctuary and its services and that uh, living illustration of the plan of salvation. Every time a a lamb was brought in and slain, the morning and evening sacrifices, uh, the blood was spilled, the the blood was taken into the holy place and sprinkled before the altar of, of incense. Every time that took place, it was a graphic reminder of the of the awfulness of sin, but of the great love and mercy of God. The sanctuary and its services typified the coming of Jesus as the lamb that would be slain once and for all for the sins of the world and as our priest and our high priest who would intercede for us in the heavenly sanctuary. And so the sanctuary and its services preached the gospel, didn't didn't it? The sanctuary preached the gospel to the Israelites. It was the same gospel according to what Paul says here in Hebrews 4 verse 2. For indeed, the gospel, not a gospel or just gospel, but what type of gospel? The gospel. The gospel. This the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. And he says, unless the preaching, unless the preaching is met with faith on the part of the hearer, then what is preached doesn't do the person any good. So it must be mingled with what? Faith. So it's not always the preacher's fault after all. (laughs) Some some folk leave church uh, not blessed at all. And maybe it was because they didn't have their ears of faith on, if if I could put it that way. Um, uh, Seeking to learn and to listen and to apply the Word of God to their lives. So the Word was preached to them didn't benefit the Israelites because it wasn't mingled with faith. And Jesus, Jesus knew this principle all too well. You remember on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you get to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. What does Jesus teach? He t- talks about a man who builds his, builds his house upon rock and another one who builds his ha- house upon the sand. And the one who builds his house upon the rock is the one who's taken the words of Jesus and done what with them? Said, ah, oh, great idea, nice, like that. Fantastic. I'll just uh, post that on my wall and I keep it there, frame it. And it's all nice. There. What have they done with Jesus' words? They didn't do that, did they? They applied them. Jesus said, if you hear my words and you do them, you're like a man who builds his house upon a rock. And so when the floods come, the storm comes, then that house is going to stand. It's going to be A-OK. It's going to be fine. So Jesus said, when you don't just hear my words, but you want to do my words. This is, of course, what James taught. He said, don't be a hearer of the word, but be a doer. Be a doer of the word, you see. When Noah was told a flood was going to come, what did Noah do? Well, thanks God, appreciate that. And um, I'll just let my family know, let a few folk know, and we'll be good to go. What did Noah do? He built a ship. Yeah, he built an ark, an ark of safety for anyone who would come in that they might be saved. Was his faith 
Mixed with his hearing? Yeah, it certainly was. When God told Moses, Moses, I know you're standing here before the Red Sea. There's nowhere else to go. The Egyptian army's on your tail. They're about to come. I want you to go forward. Go forward? There's just water, Lord. Go forward. What did Moses do? Moses went forward. Moses went forward despite of the apparent ridiculousness of the proposition. He went forward but, and his faith was mingled with his hearing, you see. So this text in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2 is one of many in the Bible that actually affirm that God's plan to save people has never changed. The gospel was preached to us, he says, and also to them, the gospel. So a person living in the Old Testament wasn't saved by keeping the law, as some, some uh, promote today. Uh, they were saved by and through the same gospel. That person needed to be saved through faith in Christ, just like we are today. A person living in the Old Testament wasn't living under some different dispensation, but they were saved by grace like we are today. I want to take you to a couple of uh, verses, Titus, just before the book of Hebrews, after Timothy, Th Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, you got all the T's together there. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. So Hebrews 4 verse 2 says the gospel that we, we preach was preached to them, the Israelites. Notice this, he, uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 11. It says, for the grace of God, the what of God? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to those living in the New Testament era only. What does your Bible say? To all men, that's exactly right. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So you can't, you can't be saying that in the Old Testament you were saved one way and you come to the New Testament under the new covenant, the new dispensation, and you're saved another way. The grace of God has appeared to all men. And notice what the grace of God teaches, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So the gospel teaches us to live clean lives. The grace of God teaches us to live for Jesus, pure, clean lives. Go over with me to, uh, where are we? 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, looking at just a few verses here about the gospel being taught in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul is addressing Israel and their problems and he's basically saying that their situation and the lessons that they learned are good for us to learn as well. And he says here in verse 3 and 4, uh, talking about the children of Israel, they were, they were baptized into Moses when they went through the sea. Verse 3, they ate of the same spiritual food. And verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was who? Christ. Jesus. Christ, that's right. So the gospel... Uh, was preached. The same gospel that's preached today is the same gospel that was preached back then. The same way you were, you were saved today was the same way folk were saved back then. Now, some of the differences are that we look back to the cross in faith. They had to look forward to the cross in faith, didn't they? But they could only be saved through grace, through faith in the grace of God, just like we are today, you see. And then you've, you've got numerous other accounts. In Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse 11, it says, By his knowledge, talking about the suffering servant, that's the Messiah, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Wow. 
The Old Testament teaches justification by faith. It's an amazing concept. For he, and why can, why can God justify the sinner? Because he bears their iniquities. And then you've got the prayer of David in Psalm 51. You could even look at Psalm 32. You can even go to Psalm 22 and 24 and 101 or 110 rather. It teaches about the grace of God. You know Psalm 51 very well. Paul, uh, uh, David rather prayed, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. So when you go to the Old Testament, you see a gospel of, of justifying grace and also of sanctifying grace. You've got the gospel of justification and the gospel of sanctification. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, one of my favorite texts, Ezekiel chapter 36. Notice how clearly Ezekiel explains the gospel. Ezekiel 36, and we're going to look at verses 25 to 27. It says, then I will sprinkle, this is God speaking, talking to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Look at verse 26. I will give you a what type of heart? A new heart. Man, powerful. I'll give you a new heart. Not that stubborn, resistant heart, but a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. You notice the progression. The progression, God says, if you come to me in repentance, I will cleanse you and wash away your sins and I will give you a new heart. This is the justifying experience. And then he says, I'll put my spirit within you that will cause you to obey me. That's the sanctifying experience, the grace of sanctification, you see. So the, 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 the gospel is clearly taught, and we could look at many other verses in the Old Testament. The gospel is clearly taught in the Old Testament. It's not a different gospel in the Old Testament and a new one, uh, you know, today. It's just not. Did you know that Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, believe in three times more grace than a dispensationalist? And a dispensationalist is simply someone who believes that you are saved uh, by keeping the law in the Old Testament and you're saved by grace in the New Testament. That's dispensation, a dispensationalist. Seventh-day Adventists believe in three times more grace than the dispensationalists. Dispensationalists believe that for 4,000 years... For 4,000 years, you were saved, a person was saved by keeping the law. And for the last two, these last 2,000 years, a person saved by grace. Seventh-day Adventists believe that you are saved by grace for the last 6,000 years. Seventh-day Adventists believe, irrespective of what some people believe, Seventh-day Adventists believe in three times more grace than a dispensationalist. We believe in 6,000 years of grace. And it's a grace that pardons sin and gives power and victory over sin, you see. That's the gospel. And anything short of that gospel is not a gospel. All right, Monday, the gospel made flesh. So we talked about the gospel in the Old Testament. Let's talk about the gospel in the gospels. Um, the author of the lesson brings out, uh, he mentions that some folk have a hard time seeing the gospel in the gospels. That's an interesting, interesting thought. Uh, you read, uh, in, you know, admittedly, you do read some of Jesus' teachings. And we've been going through the parables here during the worship hour, and we're coming to the close of that here shortly. But um, uh, you read some of the parables and you, you, you begin to wonder, I wonder whether well, there's a lot of doing here that Jesus is asking from us. There's a lot of performance 
And it could lead a person to think that maybe Jesus is promoting a righteousness by works. Well, that certainly isn't the case. Um, Let's look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. And notice, notice what Jesus teaches here is fascinating. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Just after sharing the blesseds, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, For I say to you, and he's just got through talking about how he's not changing the law or the prophets. It's all the way it has been. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Jesus' standard of righteousness was far higher and far deeper than most had understood. Most had understood and was far deeper and higher than the Pharisees' righteousness of that time. How could that be? The religious leaders were meticulous Sabbath keepers and tithe payers. They abstained from all unclean foods. They brought regular offerings to church, to the temple. How could a person be more righteous than that? I mean, and they were meticulous, and that's an, that's an understatement. I mean, they were methodical. They would even tithe. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 23. They would even tithe on, on, her, on herbs, mint and cumin and anise, and uh, they meticulous. Maybe there's a stronger word than that. How is it possible that a person's righteousness could exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? It was if, it's, it's, it's if the disciples were in the Little League and they're asked to play the San Francisco Giants in the World Series. How's that possible? <laughs> and that's, what, that's the response, no doubt, people have when they heard Jesus' words. How is it possible your righteousness has to be better than these guys? How's that possible? The following verses gives us a clue. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Look at a few verses here. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, and he's saying this to the religious leaders as well, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you compare that with Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, you'll notice that the religious leaders needed serious repentance. Their religion was a life of externals. And this is where the rub is. Their religious experience was a life of externals. John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, Jesus is meeting with one of the religious leaders, comes to Jesus by night. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. And in verse 5, he says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What? And Nicodemus was saying, how can I be born? How can a man groan, enter his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus was saying, no, no, I'm speaking of spiritual things. You, you ought to know this, Nicodemus. This is all throughout the scriptures about the new birth experience. This hasn't been hidden from you. But he told Nicodemus and he tells us and he was telling them, you need to be born again. Hmm. And then in Romans chapter 10 and verse 3, Paul says, talking of the Israelites, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking, and here it is, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And that's where the rub is right there. What did the religious leaders do? They were seeking to establish their own 
righteousness, their own standard of righteousness, rather than submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had a religious righteousness, rather, that consisted in external compliance to the letter of the law. And that will we'll come to that in the next uh, day's lesson. They taught that man is judged by a majority of his deeds. So if you can rack up enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds, you are good to go, you see. You are fine. So if the good deeds outnumber the bad ones, you'd be considered righteous. And to compensate for any wrong behavior, they implemented a merit system that they believed was their passport to heaven. But Jesus taught that any effort to attain to righteousness, righteousness through religiosity is more than worthless. What was needed was a righteousness that was from outside themselves. They needed what type of heart? A new heart. They needed a changed heart. Jesus' teachings went all the way to the heart, and that's what he was driving at. You need a righteousness that exceeds, far exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You need a righteousness that comes to the heart, that changes you from the inside out. You can perform all the good things you want, but it's going to be tainted by selfishness and, uh, and uh, selfish motives, etc. You need a change of heart. And that comes from the outside working in, you see. Jesus said to murder is to hate your brother. To commit adultery is to, to lust. And so he, Jesus went deep. And it leaves a person saying, how is it possible that I can live a righteous life like that? And that's okay to feel that way for a moment, at least. And then quickly turn to Jesus who offers his forgiving and saving grace full and free. It's through him that we receive his righteousness, you see. We give up our unrighteousness and we take on his precious righteousness. That's the plan of salvation. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's what Jesus was talking about. The righteousness, far exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus also taught that uh, God was the initiator or is the initiator of salvation. He's the one that pursued and came after us. He's the one that loves us. He's the one that sent his son to die for us, you see. And in Luke chapter 18, in that little story about the religious leader who's lifting his head to heaven and uh, saying he's grateful he's not like that guy sitting over there, um, you know, standing over there in the corner, uh, he went away unjustified while the guy who had a contrite heart, broken spirit, recognizing his need of a savior, the Bible says went away justified. And so that's the righteousness that Jesus is referring to that needs to be as far exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So we see Jesus' version of the gospel was a, a gospel of God's love initiating uh, the plan of salvation, seeking after, coming after the, the, his lost children, uh, offering forgiveness, giving the spirit of repentance, changing our hearts, embracing us with his love and with his righteousness, you see. That's what Jesus taught. That's the gospel. Let's talk about the gospel according to Paul. Uh, over here on Tuesday's lesson, we're going to spend the next few minutes discussing a topic <clears throat> that has been debated and argued in myriads of books and volumes for hundreds, several hundreds of years. And we'll see if we can pull this off in a few minutes. The key, and I think there's a lot of worth in, in what I'm about to say, the key to understanding Paul's theology is in recognizing the key events in his life that shaped his theology. 
What were those, what were those things? Paul, he, was, he, told, he was said of himself that he was, he was a meticulous, strict law keeper. I mean, if there was a Jew that was a good Jew, it was Paul. But then he was on his way to Damascus. He was going to deliver up some Christians to the Jews, thinking he was doing God's service. And who did he meet? Jesus. He met Jesus. He met Jesus. And meeting Jesus changed Paul's life. Paul did not encounter a theology. Paul encountered Jesus. Amen. Now, I'm going to qualify that. I'm, I know you're hanging. I'm going to qualify that. Jesus, Paul encountered Jesus, and it was Jesus that changed his life. There's no doubt about that at all. And his life was changed through the gospel as taught by the Scriptures. Now, Paul, like each one of us, need to weigh, match, or weigh our experience by the Word of God. Is what I've experienced a genuine experience? Is what I'm experiencing a genuine experience? Am I meeting the conditions by the grace of God? Do I understand the gospel aright? And if my experience isn't matching what the Word of God teaches, then my, my experience is false. If I think that I can uh, appropriate the, the grace of Jesus while knowingly disobeying God or neglecting some known duty, then I, I'm not understanding or believing in the true gospel, you see, because the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus' justifying grace and his robe of righteousness covers known disobedience. It doesn't teach that. So I need to align my experience to the teachings of the Scriptures, just like Paul did. But what shaped his life was meeting Jesus and the gospel as taught in the Scriptures. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 with me, uh, real quickly. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll look at a few other verses. <clears throat> Paul, a bondservant of Jesus, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before... Through his prophets in where? The Holy Scriptures. That's right. What, scriptures did, what were the Scriptures that Paul had in his hand at that, at that time? To us, it was the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, what did he learn? He learned about the Gospel of God, didn't he? He learned about the Gospel of God. He, he studied it, he knew about it, and he preached it. Something that was preached before by the prophets of God. Um, so Paul saw, saw that his righteousness was no good in contrast to the beauty and glory of Jesus' righteousness, and it humbled him. And he said, you know, uh, God has favored me and given me the privilege of being a minister of the gospel to preach the gospel to sinners of whom I am chief. It meeting Jesus and knowing the gospel in the scriptures totally revolutionized Paul's life. He wasn't the same again. He realized what he was doing wasn't righteousness at all. God has a different standard of righteousness, and that righteousness God wants to, through the Spirit, be implanted in our, in our hearts and lives. That's what he understood. He said in Galatians 2, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul experienced that personally. And that's what changed his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 14 to 16. Paul was writing from experience. This was his experience before he encountered Christ personally and in the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 14 to 16. 
He says, talking of the Israelites in Moses' day, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. In other words, the, uh, there's a veil covering the Old Testament that, that the Israelites in Moses' day and in Paul's day couldn't see Jesus. If they, if they accepted Jesus as the Messiah, it would lift the veil. It would uh, clear it up. You know, it's kind of like looking at writing and uh, you don't have your glasses on and everything's blurry and you can't make any sense of it. Uh, putting glasses on, putting the glasses on would be equivalent to seeing Jesus as the Messiah. If they saw Jesus as the Messiah, putting the, put the glasses, they'd be able to put the glasses on and see clearly what, what the Old Testament scriptures were teaching regarding the gospel. Verse 15, but even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. So there was, a, there was a veil over the writings of Moses. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, what happens to the veil? Taken away. So Paul was commissioned as a minister of the new covenant, but his ministry for the Jews in his day was no more effective than Moses was in his time. And as I mentioned, the Jews lacked a capacity to see the, these great spiritual truths, lessons in the ceremonies and in the sacrifices that were performed there in the sanctuary. To them, the letter of the law was glorious, but it had veiled their eyes from understanding the spirit of the law. The veil was over the writings of Moses, which kept them from seeing Christ. This had more to do with their will than their intellect. They, are, they, they, they were intellectual individuals, but they were willfully disobedient, willfully ignorant. They did not want to accept this version of the Messiah this version of the Christ. They didn't want to accept that. Only the discovery of Jesus in the Old Testament would have lifted the veil from the reading of the Scriptures. If they accepted Jesus as Messiah, it would have made perfect sense. They would have been able to understand it, like putting glasses on when the lines are blurry, making it crisp, crisp and clean. But they refused to do it. And so they, the letter of the law became far more important than the Spirit. And that's what Jesus was driving at there in Matthew. You've heard it said of old, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, he that hates his brother. It's an issue of the heart, isn't it? I mean, I, can, I, I, I haven't hurt a man. A person can go through their entire life and not kill anyone. But that doesn't make you righteous or ready for heaven. What's happening in the heart is the issue. What's happening in the heart is the issue. And this is what Paul was saying, the, the, the letter of the law was preventing them from embracing the spirit. Were both, were, were both important? Absolutely. You don't know the genuine spirit of the law without knowing the letter of the law. How can you, and we'll talk about the covenant and just the new and old covenant in just a moment, but uh, they needed to accept the gospel, bottom line. And that's what Paul's saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. They just would not accept the Messiah. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul, what is, how did Paul define the gospel? He says first, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Notice, it is the power of God unto salvation or the power of God to save all who believe. Uh, everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So <clears throat> the gospel is God's power to save all who believe. And what does that salvation include? It includes pardon and it also includes power. Notice it talks about 
from going from faith to faith. That's a growing and developing experience, is it not? We're talking here about the gospel that justifies the believer and a gospel that sanctifies a believer. It's all by the grace of God. And then in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26, here we have the heart of the gospel in the book of Romans. Notice Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. Paul says, being justified, and if you have a hard time with that word justified, um, just think of it as, as this, just as if I had, done no, had committed no sin, just as if I have committed no sin. Um, Jesus, when we are justified, Jesus treats us, God treats us as if we have done no wrong, committed no sin. When we come to him in true penitence and faith and reach out our, 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 our arm of faith and appropriate the promise of forgiveness, Jesus forgives us, but he also treats us as though we've never sinned. That's huge. That's, ma- that's massive. Jesus justifies us, being justified, cleared of guilt and cleansed by grace. We're being justified what? Freely by his grace through the redemption that is God has brought us back by paying for our sins that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation or a reconciler by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins or forgiven the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's, we, we could spend a couple of weeks talking about those few verses. This is huge. But in essence, Paul's version of the gospel is a justifying gospel and a sanctifying gospel. God forgives our sins and then gives us his righteousness. God is declared righteous, just and a just, just, a just God when he justifies the sinner. How is it possible that God could be considered just? Because a broken law demanded death. The law couldn't be changed. The devil said to God, you can't forgive them. They've done, they've done the wrong thing. It's this too late, beyond help. And God said, no, we have a plan. Can't change the law but I'm going to express my love in a way that you don't understand. And so he sent his son and Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. He died for the sins of the world, bore on him yours and my transgression, took that upon him. Massive, massive stuff. And he offers us his saving grace because of what he has done, gives us his righteousness, covers us in his righteousness and imbues that righteousness into our hearts and into our Lives. He can be just because God, doesn't, God never declares something righteous that he doesn't make righteous. When God declares you righteous, it's because he's making, made you righteous and making you righteous. Powerful stuff. The gospel answers the question in the great controversy. Is God who he says he is? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we must move on. We've got Wednesday and Thursday to pull off in seven minutes and 44 seconds. All right. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 through 13. Um, uh, Boy, I don't know how we're going to do this, but let's just do something here. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 through 13. You've heard about the Old and New Covenant, yes? Old and New Covenant. Let's talk about the New Covenant here for just a little bit. Hebrews 8, verse 6 through 13. Notice what Paul says. 
But now, talking of Jesus, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, that's referring to the old covenant, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds will I remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is being becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to establish or vanish rather away. What is the old covenant? The old covenant was established, or oh, by the way, what is a covenant? A covenant is basically an agreement made between two parties established on mutual promises, correct? When was the old covenant, or old covenant, yeah, established? It was established at Mount Sinai. That's exactly right. It was established at Mount Sinai. It was ratified with blood. You remember the story. And the covenant, the, the covenant was the promise that the people made. You remember what the people said? All that the Lord has said, he declared his law. All that the law has said, we will do. I want you to notice that the law is the basis of the covenant. And the people said, we will do it. Did they know what they were saying? They had no idea what they were saying. Because <laughs> not too many chapters later, they're breaking the first and the second commandment, aren't they? And probably several others. So they're there, they break the, 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 the commandment. So was, the, was there anything wrong with the original, or the old rather, the old covenant, not the original, but the old covenant? There was nothing wrong with it. What does it say here? What does it say? Where was the problem? The problem was with the people. Look at verse 8. Finding fault with them, not the covenant, but with the people. What was the problem with the people? They said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Is it possible to keep God's law in and, in and of their own strength, in and of our own strength? No, no. And so they failed dismally. God allowed them to fail. Why? So that they would stop seeking to establish their own righteousness and submit themselves to the righteousness of God. God, we can't do this. God, we can't obey. We need your grace. And so the new covenant was established. And by the way, the new covenant was not new in the sense it was, hey, guess what, guys? Got a great plan for you. It was the everlasting covenant, the covenant that had been established in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. And in Genesis chapter 3.15, God told Adam that he would put enmity, hatred in the hearts of his people towards sin. That was the, that was the establishment of the everlasting gospel. And that, gospel, that covenant would not be ratified until Jesus died on Calvary. So the new covenant was really the everlasting covenant. It was new in the sense that, the, that it wasn't experienced by God's people. And so that's that. I want to just uh, encourage you uh, to go ahead and read in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 370 to 372, a terrific explanation about the two covenants. Ellen White, phenomenal. 
talking about the everlasting covenant, the old and new covenants and what it all meant. Take time to read that because we don't have time to do it today. You see, I brought the book because I was anticipating we'd get there, but we didn't get there. Let's go to Thursday's lesson and let's close. Let's close on Thursday's lesson. Revelation chapter 10 verse 7 says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets. Next to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, this verse in Revelation 10 is the only other verse in Revelation that specifically refers to the preaching of the gospel. He preached, that's the word evangelizio, preach or proclaim the good news. Uh, the word preached comes from the Greek word evangelizo, which means to proclaim the good news. Seventh-day Adventists find their calling and their commission in these two verses, Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, and Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. The gospel from Genesis to Revelation is the same. The law of God is the same. That hasn't changed. The covenant is the same. That hasn't changed. Jesus, Paul, and James all affirm the gospel is the same one that Abraham believed. And you can read that in John 8:56, Romans 4:13, and James chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. Abraham, God established the everlasting covenant to Abraham. And Abraham believed in the coming of the Messiah and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was his belief in the coming of the Christ that was accounted him righteous, you see. And so the gospel embraces, and what we've looked at here, is that the gospel embraces both the, the pardon, pardon of sin and also the power to overcome sin. The Christian doesn't need to find a perfect balance between faith and works. All you need is faith. That's it. A faith and that faith will save you by the grace of God, you see. Revelation 14, 12, we'll look at this last verse. And we could look at Revelation 12, 17 as well. But this is an astounding verse. In the face of uh, problems, in the face of massive adversity and stiff opposition, under the most trying circumstances this world is ever going to and has ever experienced, God declares that there are going to be a group of people in the last days that keep his commandments perfectly, Amen. that perfectly obey the commandments of God. And I know that word perfect disrupts a few people, but that's the purpose of the gospel. When you plant a seed in the ground, what's your purpose? <coughs> to eat. Isn't that right? You plant corn in the ground so you can have corn on the cob or popcorn, right? The, the purpose of the gospel is not forgiveness merely of sin, not just even the power to overcome sin, but to remove sin from the believer's life and reclaim us from sin completely. The restoration of mankind, bringing us back from whence we fell. That's the purpose of the gospel. And anything short of that gospel is not the gospel. And so in Revelation 14, verse 12, it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Powerful, powerful. This is significant because it reveals, that the goal, reveals the goal of the gospel, perfect obedience to the law of God. God finding people that are safe to save at last. And they're doing this under the most severe trying opposition to God's law in the last days. That's how powerful the gospel is. It reclaims and restores and transforms people's lives more than we even probably give it credit for. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.